0: This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, they'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com future.
1: And also by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code future at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You know that inevitable hangover feeling when you return to work after the holidays? Work is piled up, emails have gone unanswered. Yeah, but thanks to technology, it doesn't have to be that way. For
0: example, I did all of the interviews for this episode on Thanksgiving Day. Sure, it was a hassle, but it also is kind of incredible that I can work from anywhere at any time on a
1: national holiday, how is that incredible?
0: Well, when it comes to technology, it seems to be a double-edged sword. We're always connected, but we're always connected.
1: So this is what working is like today. But we want to see how this would change going forward. And that's what's on tap for this week's episode of Futuropolis, the future of work. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. This constant connectivity can be a blessing and a curse. Having smartphones glued to our hands has made it possible to email from your car, not while you're driving, of course, or from the dinner table or from your bed in the middle of the night.
0: This flexibility is important if you're working and raising children at the same time, for example, but it can also be a burden. If you don't reply immediately,
1: will your boss get angry? So far, society hasn't quite figured out if this should be the norm or if we should draw a hard line between personal life and work life.
2: I think what's worrying about work impinging into evenings and leisure time is that lots of people feel they don't have any choice about whether to reply to things at that time or not.
1: That's Judy Weissman, a sociologist at the London School of Economics. She's the author of the book Pressed for Time, and she studies the impact of these digital technologies on work and everyday life.
0: And as someone who works from home, that's me, I can really feel like work only stops when I go somewhere without reception or Wi-Fi, so this impact is pretty strong on me. And email is only one part of it.
1: Technology promises to streamline all kinds of mundane tasks.
0: Yeah, so most jobs have their monotonies, whether it's emailing in an office job or working on a factory line. And it turns out, monotony is what machines do best.
1: In August 1962, Popular Science raved about a brand new robot designed to do factory work.
3: The $25,000 robot Unimate will earn its keep in industrial plants. It will operate a welding gun, run a punch press, or load a conveyor. Will Unimate compete for your job? If so, chances are your job isn't good enough for you, answers its maker, consolidated President J.P. Engelberger. Where Unimate shines is precisely at tasks that human workers shouldn't be doing, he maintains. Jobs that are hot, noisy, hazardous, or monotonous. Let our mechanical slaves release men from drudgery, and let's give men jobs that are worthy of men.
0: So robots are supposed to swoop in and save us all from menial tasks, letting humans take on more meaningful
1: work. But it's not always going to be a smooth transition. Hod Lipson is a roboticist at Columbia University.
4: We used to call this creative destruction. You know, this idea that new technologies come along to create new opportunities uh, uh, at the same time that they eliminate existing jobs. And, you know, the best example is the the automatic uh, teller machine that replaced a couple of uh, um, uh, bank tellers, but also created, uh, you know, better banking and new online opportunities for developers and so forth. So computers eliminated, Uh, bank tellers and created new opportunities for high-speed trading, but not every bank teller can immediately be trained to be a quant on Wall Street.
0: But let's be honest. We're the ones creating these technologies, after all. Sure, the we might be young technophiles experimenting in Silicon Valley, but it's not like robots are building themselves.
1: Well, I mean, kind of. They're starting to, but that's sort of beside the point. Here's Judy again.
2: We need to think about science and technology as fundamentally social, that we need to get away from the idea that, that scientific and technological developments are just inevitable, they just drive change, and that we're passive recipients of this and that we can do nothing about this.
1: We, as a society, are collectively deciding what is and isn't okay for technology to do. And it's not just the bank
0: tellers. There's also truck driving, which employs 3.5 million people across the country. As self-driving vehicles inch toward reality, that could have a huge effect on a lot of livelihoods. Here's HOD again.
4: Driving is one of these sort of uh, half physical, half cerebral tasks that we all have to do. Uh, Traditionally, it was very, very difficult to automate that because it has to deal with uh, uh, a driving robot, sort of has to deal with a lot of unstructured situations, a lot of surprises. It's difficult to program a robot in advance to drive. But uh, these sorts of things are now becoming possible. Uh, and uh, again, this, this is a double-edged sword. We're going to save a lot of lives, but we're going to put a lot of people out of work. And uh, it's uh, it's always these two sides to the coin.
1: So now we're talking about machines moving beyond the menial, repetitive tasks. And according to Hod, artificial intelligence is capable of a lot more than you might think
4: sort of as software, is also threatening things uh, like, um, you know, doctors that make uh, clinical decisions, for example, or uh, even uh, uh, lawyers that uh, do, that analyze documents. And again, I'm not suggesting that all doctors would be replaced by artificial intelligence, but certainly uh, some parts of their job that involve looking at data and making diagnosis and making decisions could be automated.
1: So in the end, it might be better to have AI trained by a great doctor to perform some tasks rather than a mediocre human doctor.
0: In May 1964, popular science was curious about whether even the highest level jobs would get replaced by automation.
3: Will anybody be left on the job besides executives? Even executives are not immune to automation. They get paid for making decisions, and machines can do that. The manager of a warehouse, for instance, has to keep just the right amount of stock on hand. He may weigh many factors, the weather, approaching holidays, business activity, past sales patterns, the attitude of the Russians, congressional actions, trends in fashion, before ordering more stock. Computers can weigh factors like those and reach a decision from them.
1: And now researchers are working on something called deep learning artificial intelligence. It's being taught to go beyond automation to be creative and actually generate ideas.
0: So while it may seem strange to start replacing artists and doctors with robots, it's not all doom and gloom.
1: A lot of people in the world don't even have access to healthcare. So, you know, if they can access artificial intelligence on their phone to connect with a virtual doctor, that's a huge improvement.
0: Technology isn't just going to take our jobs in the future, though. In many ways, it's going to make our work lives better. Fumiya Iida is an engineer at the University of Cambridge, where he studies biologically inspired soft robots.
1: For a long time, robots in factories have been kept separate from people because they're 99% rigid. You know, they're these hard materials that are dangerous to be around. But if we can make them of softer materials, the same way humans are made of skin and muscles, maybe we can work alongside them more easily.
5: So the robots are, you know, conventional robots, like, you know, factory car-making uh, robots. For example, they are basically caged into factory or caged into some, you know, remote space from human. Usually, human has to always program it and look at it from a uh, distance. But basically, if you have a soft robots, we can have better interactivity with the uh, humans. Um, and on top of that, we can also extend this idea all the way down to uh, wearable uh, systems.
0: And a wearable robot could help older people or people with health problems work. Here's Fumia again.
5: At the moment, the factory workers is actually wearing it. And uh, um, usually they're standing, uh, you know, putting things together or, um, or transporting something. But uh, there's a moment that they have to stand in a very... Um, strange posture like, you know, spreading legs and, and bend the knee a little bit. They have to keep this posture for a couple of minutes and that's very demanding, especially for old people. So, uh, But by having um, the robot help, helping some of the joints in our body, uh, the human can um, more easily uh, stand in, in this posture.
1: So the hope is that technologists of the future will figure out how to integrate wearable chairs and AI doctors and smartphone connectivity into our lives in meaningful ways.
0: Preferably without making our own work obsolete. And according to Judy, these shiny new technologies of today are going to become the norm before we know it.
2: I think if we had this conversation in 20 years, people would have a very different sense of these technologies and that The technologies would would have sort of faded much more into the background, if you know what I mean, just like all of these technologies I'm sitting with here at phone, you know, the electricity, the lights, um, the heater, all the other technologies that we don't really think about that much, that we're very sort of focused on the new always with new technology.
1: To dig a little deeper into the workplace of the future, we turn to Glenn Heemstra, a futurist and founder of futurist.com. We'll get to that conversation right after this message from our sponsor. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical, or futuristic, you might say. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, they'll support that too. Sounds to me like the end of paper money, which, for those of you who are interested, is a long-running tradition, began in the 13th century when Kublai Khan declared that money should henceforth be made of paper. Anyways, Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support mean you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit BraintreePayments.com future. And now, back to our conversation with Glenn. Hi, Glenn. Can you tell us what it is that you do?
6: Yes. Uh, I am uh, the founder and owner of Futurist.com. I've been a professional futurist for uh, since the 90s when I set up the company.
1: So I think you know one of the old adages we kind of hear when we're looking to the future is that we're training people for jobs that don't exist yet. What do you think those jobs are going to be or might look like?
6: Interestingly, I'm becoming more convinced that there will be uh, an increasing number of jobs dealing with uh, living in space as uh, the various private companies are uh, increasingly successful at launching and bringing back both rockets and satellites and so on. And and uh, the leaders of those companies have visions of hundreds of thousands, even billions of people uh, living and working in space right out of the old science fiction stories that we used to see. And I'm thinking that that could be a, a much bigger deal in the, you know, later in the century than we might think today.
1: Yeah, that's definitely not something that many, many colleges have a program for at this point, at least.
6: No, I, I would imagine not.
1: Do you think there's any particular skills or technologies that you think the employee of the future will, will need as sort of standard practice on their resume?
6: um yes it's it's a little hard to put on the resume number one you know a lot of people would answer that and say well they should know uh, how to code uh, and and how to um uh work with data at a at a more granular level rather than just um, you know signing into a spreadsheet program or something and that will probably be an advantage but i i always assume that there will be advanced technologies that will do make that very easy and so it's just a matter of following menus but, and so I would say in this way, uh, showing an ability to, um, an interest in working with data and information and, and a desire to continuously learn.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of social media, which, you know, that is an entire job for some people now, and I'm still kind of reticent to get on Twitter, but, you know, in the last five years or whatever, it's, it's totally exploded and become integral to a lot of positions.
6: Yeah, that, that's a fantastic example, as a matter of fact. No, I really don't know enough about social media, and that's a whole professional field. As a matter of fact, one of my daughters is now the director of social media marketing for a major uh, North American retailer. So that is a whole new field, and I expect that that's going to continue to grow because social media methodologies and, and tools and so on continue to develop and change on a continuous basis. And so uh, keeping up with that is something that's uh, both a challenge and an opportunity.
1: And a lot of these types of things, including social media, are things we do on a computer. We don't need to physically be somewhere to make it happen. Do you think we'll still have an economy where we commute to an office and sit in a cubicle?
6: In the 1990s, when telecommuting first began, I was pretty convinced that we would not be commuting to offices and cubicles nearly to the degree that we still are today. Um, And so I'm I'm a little bit more skeptical about saying, oh, new... We will sit at our computers at home or in work centers and we'll use even three-dimensional virtual reality tools and so on. We will do more of that, Uh, and I think over time people will travel to offices to basically wiggle their fingers on keyboards and talk to people on phones less than they do today. But very few people will do that full time from, say, a home or, or a remote location. Most of us will still go to offices and locations because we need to get together in meetings. Uh, there needs to, and and no matter how good uh, kind of uh, virtual reality technology might become in terms of uh, uh, enabling us to be in the same room electronically with people, there's still an advantage to being there in person. So over time, the amount of people in offices at any given time will. Will shrink, but uh, they will still exist in twenty or thirty or forty years.
1: Do you think we'll get to a point where we don't need to be working forty hours a week because we've become so efficient?
6: Yes, and and that doesn't necessarily mean that we will do that. Of course, there there was a, there was a study, and I I wish I could remember the person's name um, uh, that took a look at the uh, standard of living circa nineteen fifty where everybody had a relatively small house and you had one car and you had one television and you had one radio and you had one refrigerator, uh, etc. Uh, and uh, her conclusion was that if we had increased productivity at the rate that we did and everybody said that living standard is good enough. We don't need bigger houses. We don't need multiple TVs. We don't need multiple car- cars, etc. Everybody could be working half time today uh, and having that, kind of 1950s standard uh, of living Uh, but of course people kind of like new things and they like more things and so on and so uh, even though we might be more efficient and able to do that I'm I'm not convinced that we will Uh, hopefully we might get into a situation where that's an option for people uh, but I don't know that that would become a, a standard for the whole society
0: we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor So when I was in college, I took a computer science class, and I decided I really, really needed to build my own website. Armed with a very basic knowledge of HTML and CSS and JavaScript, I built a very clunky, ugly, boring website, and it took me a really long time. Had Squarespace existed at the time, I probably would have saved a lot of my late night college hours, and it would have looked a lot more professional and a lot better. So despite your skill level, even if you haven't taken Computer Science 101 in college, you can build a site using Squarespace. And it'll look great, and you don't have to do any coding yourself. It's intuitive, easy to use, and you can get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code FUTURE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now,
1: back to the show. So what changes are you most excited for when you look to the future of work?
6: Uh, I'm excited for a, a work place or a, a work culture in which learning is more part of the game rather than just doing what you've always done without ever trying anything new. I think that would be uh, enriching and enable us to really literally evolve as a, as a civilization. So that's, that's a cool thing.
1: Yeah, sounds pretty exciting to me. Is there any aspects you fear about the changes to come?
6: Well, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm not as fearful of this as some other futurists and writers are these days. And that has to do with the automation, over-automation of work, such that, um, you know, the machines do everything. Basically, robots do every, everything and, and there isn't any work to for, for people to do. Uh, I, I think that that is, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a nice science fiction scenario. Uh, I think that we'll, we'll continue to invent lots of new things for people to do. It could be that we could work a little bit less as long as we could figure out how to distribute uh, income in a fair and appropriate way, even though machines are doing more. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about that. Um, but not overly concerned about it. I, I think that we'll adjust and take advantage of automation more than sort of being completely uh, uh, sort of outsourced by by automation, and there's nothing left for people to do. And if there's nothing left, if we people don't need to make things anymore, there's all kinds of things that people could do instead.
1: Do you have sort of an idea of what that might be if it's not physically making things?
6: Uh, oh, if I if we're not if we're not physically making things, you know, imagine a world where. Uh, you're manufacturing things molecularly using nanotechnology and what's not done that way is done by, by, by robotic machines and robotic factories. Um, Well, then what we make is entertainment and we make literature and we make art and we make uh, uh, human relationships. Uh, It's, it's, uh, we make, um, we make um, schools, we make all kinds of things that, that uh, enable uh, people to live richer lives rather than just sort of punching out the, the next uh, uh, thing that we need to, to manipulate with our hands. So, you know, that, that's, that's the, I realize that's a little bit uh, over-optimistic perhaps, but, uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's the future which I think is possible at least.
1: I don't think there's anything wrong with the sort of sci-fi-inspired utopia. We could all use a little bit more of that.
6: Yes, yeah, I'd like to, I, I hope I'm around to see home offices on, on Mars. Uh, that, that would be cool.
1: Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Glenn. We really appreciate it.
6: You are welcome.
0: Something that has stuck with me since our Money episode is a quote futurist Heather Schlegel told me, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. As it turns out, we seem to have a citizen of the future working at Popular Science.
1: Katie Peek is our information editor, and while she attends meetings and stops by our cubicles to chat, she does it via telepresence robot. So we had a couple of questions about what that's like. So maybe to start, if you could just tell our listeners what the telepresence robot is and how it works. So, yeah, that's a great place to start. The robot is, um, it's a screen that's attached to a
7: heavy base um, with a couple of big wheels on it by sort of two long stalks uh, or stilts. And it uses the wheels to drive around, and then on the screen appears my face. Um, and so it's sort of like a video chat software that you can drive around. And I actually click a little button that says beam in, and I click the button, I beam in, and I appear on the screen. And then I um, can you know, drive into somebody's cubicle and bother them if they're ignoring my emails or whatever.
0: And so when you are on your home side of things in Baltimore and you're showing up in the New York office for PopSci, like, how does it feel? Do you feel like you are part of the team? Do you feel like you're actually there? Yeah.
7: Um, no, I absolutely feel like I'm there. And I think that's the magic of the telepresence robot. It is. It's more, much more so than a chat or a phone call. It really makes me feel like I'm there. Like, I being in a home office can be isolating. And so I, after I have roboted in and, like, chatted with somebody or got, attended a meeting, I really, like, I feel like I've gotten that personal interaction that you Get from being in an office. That's one of the major benefits of having a workplace that you go to and seeing the same people every day. Like I feel like I've seen those people and connected with them um, in a very real way. When I beam out again, it's it's like I'm, I'm coming home from New York almost.
1: So aside from the fact that you don't have any arms with which to open doors, <laughs> are there any sort of drawbacks or downsides that you've you've experienced with the with the robot?
7: Um, yeah, I mean it's not perfect. The sound. <laughs> A major problem is that I have no idea how loud my volume is. Um, And it can get quite loud. And so you have to sort of tune into people's body language on the other side of the room. And I sort of like see if it seems like people who are a little
1: too far away are looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you need to re-socialize to a whole new set of norms.
7: Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm it's. It's really weird to not have that feedback of knowing how loud my voice is Um, and having to rely on people being like, "Mm, maybe you should turn down your volume just a little. (laughs)
0: And so with the robot, you can also, as you mentioned, you know, move around and um, go into different rooms and conference rooms and offices and things like that. How does it compare, you know, walking in the office as a person with other people versus, you know, driving alongside
7: them in the robot? Driving is its whole own experience. The robot is super awkward. Um, Walking and talking is not really an option. (laughs) Maybe it will be once I am on it for another year and uh, get even more skilled at navigating.
0: Is there anything you wish the robot could do that it can't right now?
7: Yeah, I mean, there's basic functionality, like opening a door (laughs) Um, is pretty fun. I I think it's unreasonable to expect the robot to be able to open the door. But it would be cool if I could get into a conference room where the door is closed instead of sort of banging the door repeatedly with the robot uh, until somebody lets me in. Um, There's definitely a degree, like I'm at the mercy of the people I'm with. There is a problem that I can lose connection to the point where I can't drive anymore. And if I'm in a Wi-Fi dead zone, I just get stuck. And I have to ask someone to come and push me out of the Wi-Fi dead zone. Um, and I feel very helpless in those moments. Could you see
0: offices full of beams in the future? And would you would you recommend that?
7: That's a good question. I've never encountered... No, I have. I, I have encountered another beam. We do have two in the office. Um, and I have occasionally seen... Never tried to have a conversation with someone else on a beam while I'm on one. Um... But I could see that. I mean, it, it feels like a real, a real conversation and a, a real connection. Um, and so I think if that became the future, um, I think it could work well.
1: I do wonder, though, if everybody's working remotely, would we even need an office space? Like, Would it, <laughs> would it make sense to maintain a physical office just for the robots?
0: That does seem kind of funny.
7: It's true. It's suddenly becoming very much like the Matrix or
1: something. <laughs> <laughs> You're living in the Matrix, Katie. Yes.
7: <laughs> we could all just have VR headsets instead and uh, come into our meeting room that way. Exactly. <laughs>
0: That's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can find us at popsci.com
1: or on Twitter at popsci. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. We'd like to
0: thank Andy Bowers, Zach Dinerstein, Henry Malofsky, and Laura Mayer at Panoply. Thanks to Steph Yin for her research and production help on this episode. And thanks to Sophie Bushwick for being our voice of the archives. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the future.